sit with and wrestle with and perhaps even experience the possibility that it would be okay for you to be ordinary and that you would be loved. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with Meechin Hatmaker. Today, I'm thrilled to explore the world of my own Enneagram number, the threes, with fellow three, actor and life coach, Lisa Welchel. Okay, everybody. Hi. Hi. Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. Well, guys, gosh. I just sent a little note to my producer after sending her this exact episode. And I was like, I never want the Enneagram series to end. We are in a series called For the Love of the Enneagram. And if your response is indicative of anything, we are all into it. It's not just me. So I'm so happy that you're here. I'm so happy this is resonating with you as much as it is with me. So next up in our series... We're diving into all the things around my own number, your girl, Jen, Enneagram three. And to help me do that, oh, you're going to love this episode. I'm talking to a fellow three who happens to be somebody you probably already know because three's got a three. Our next guest in the series is Enneagram three, Lisa Welchel. So Lisa has a tidal wave of accomplishments. I'm sure you remember her maybe first and originally as Blair with the good hair on the 80s sitcom, The Facts of Life, of course. But she has just done so much since. She's authored more than a dozen books. She has stood on stages and captured thousands of hearts as a speaker. She mentions this, but she walked 500 miles across Spain. She filmed a movie with Tyler Perry. She hosted a talk show with Jeff Probst. One year, when her three kids were growing up, they all piled into an RV for a solid year and drove across America. And she has the audacity to remember that trip fondly. But we also talk deeply about what these last 12 years have looked like and how Lisa has deconstructed and reconstructed. It's powerful and it's incredibly vulnerable. And she let me know right out of the gate that she has not done a podcast since 2008. She hasn't written a book since 2008. She has been sort of in her personal work and in her space. And this is the one she came out for. So she said yes to the For the Love podcast. This will be my first time to sort of speak here and about these new ideas and places that I'm in. And I'm honored, honored to have hosted this incredible conversation. Enneagram threes, get excited. You are going to feel seen today. If you love a three, if you work with a three, if you're parenting a three, if you don't get the threes, dial in tight. We're going to help you understand us. We're going to help you figure out how to be in conflict with us. We're going to tell you what we're really worried about, what we're really thinking. And Lisa brings in all her authenticity and vulnerability to the conversation. And I'm so grateful that she did. So I'm pleased to share my conversation with Enneagram three, Lisa Welchel. I am utterly delighted, Lisa, to welcome you to the For the Love podcast. I'm tickled and tickled and tickled beyond words. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. I'm tickled as well. I have desired to meet you and I'm so excited to get to virtually meet you. Me too. It's time. We have a lot of crossover in our circles. Now, I, of course, and tons of my listening community, we've known you for decades, 
and loved you for decades. And so it's just so delightful to have you here. You've been on a path. You have been on a journey your whole life, but even maybe especially in this last decade or so, even these last few years, I wonder if you could just, before we kind of dive in, a couple of things. Will you give us an update about where you are in your life right now? Where are you? Who's living with you? What are you doing? What are you excited about? And then maybe even how are you evolving? Like right this moment, I've seen you hanging out with some of my beloveds from the liturgists. And so I wonder if you could just give us the 30,000 foot view of Lisa and where you're at right now. Wow, that is a big question. And since we are talking about the Enneagram 3, I'm wired for efficiency, so I will give you bullet points. <laughs> That's so great. I'll have to say that my journey, I'll encapsulate the last 12 years because that's really where my deconstruction began about 12 years ago. And I read a book recently that talked about the average deconstruction from beginning to end takes about 12 years. And I'm really glad I didn't read that in the beginning of it because that does feel daunting, but I have found it to be true. And actually, at the beginning of my deconstruction, I had a dream. And in the dream, I came upon a toll booth and the attendant asked me for $20 to cross this bridge. And I said, 20 bucks, that's an awful lot of money. And she said, oh, this passageway will cost you more and take you longer than you ever imagined. And you can turn around, but you first have to traverse the entire bridge and you can't turn around till you get to the other side. But at that point, you'll be at the base of the mountain and it's your choice. You dreamed that? (laughs) I did. Wow. And it's been true. It's cost me more and taken longer than I ever imagined. But when I did get to the base of the mountain, you know, that actually was even more daunting, but I didn't want to turn around. I am just noodling that. (laughs) Yes. So the last 12 years I've gone through a divorce. I was on Survivor. Let's see. I had my first grandbaby. I got remarried. I took a year to just do an internal adventure, but I did it in external ways. So in that year, I did a 30-day silent retreat. And then I went to Peru and did four ayahuasca ceremonies. And then I went to Spain and walked 500 miles across northern territory of Spain on the Camino de Santiago became a life coach. And I really kind of withdrew from any kind of my previous life as a writer or a speaker other than just a little dotted here or there. And then I remarried last year and I'm living in Nashville and just got a new puppy and a new stepson. So (laughs) where I am now. (laughs) Well, that is a year. You're having a year. That was so much that you just packed in there that I am stunned. That was a very Enneagram 3 list that you just made. Just absolutely power-packed with experiences. And I love what you said. When you just gave that 12-year marker, I did the quick mental math and went backwards about that amount of time in my story. And I find that theory true. I've never heard that number. I've never put like a bit of a bracket on what that might look like in the span of a human life. That's been pretty close to my story too. That's really interesting. I wonder if, before we just move on, because what you just said was fascinating, is there any way that you can kind of encapsulate, again, this is too big of a question, but what did you leave behind and what are you now holding on to? Like, what did this season of deconstruction and then reconstruction, what do you have now? What are you holding now? Well, I will say that I left behind, 
I'm going to say 95% of my former life. That's a big number. Wow. Sure is. I will say the 5% that I was able to hold on to was the core and most important 5% of my life. But I would say the 95%, I lost everything, I would say. And they weren't, you know, just periphery things. They were core things to my life, but they weren't the core core. So I I left behind everything. I, I was able to hold on to my relationship with my children. Interestingly enough, I was able to hold on to the relationship with my ex-husband. Oh, wow. I was able to hold on to my relationship to Jesus. I can't say I was able to hold on to my relationship to Father God because I've had to let go of the kind of the image of a Father God. And that has been one of the most grievous things for me because I loved having a father, which I didn't have growing up. And so to let go of that image of a big, strong, powerful, all-knowing, all-protective image of a father has been one of the scariest things for me. And to let go of that, I'm still in the process of that. And I have yet to really feel into replacing. I do intuitively know that there is a, a strong, holding, loving presence that's available, but it's so much easier to imagine kind of see an image than it is to sense into feeling a presence. And so I will say that I have been able to hold on to a sense of God, but I have had to let go of the image. Mm. I have so many other things I want to talk to you about, but I am so sorry that you have just grabbed my attention so deeply that I wonder because, you know, I've had a similar evolution in some different ways and also some same ways. And there was a really strong period of release and deciding what I sift through the rubble, what remains here for me. What made you start? Where was your tension? What were the things in your life that were rubbing or that were causing you to feel a cognitive dissonance? Where was the rub for you that you felt like, I'm going to have to pay that $20. I'm going to have to cross that bridge. Yeah. I'll say there was one specific moment and then followed by another specific moment. And then I will explain kind of where the rub manifested. So the first moment was when my kids were in junior high, we moved back to Texas. I was raised in Texas and then I moved to California to be in show business. And then I left show business to once my kids were born. So I moved back to Texas when they were in junior high and I was invited to a home Bible study, but it was like, unlike any home Bible study I'd ever been invited to. For one thing, the worship, we didn't really sing. The room was filled with music, but we really just kind of felt the music and let it transport us. And so it was more of a, it wasn't in the head. It was very much embodied. And it took us inside ourselves rather than outside of ourselves. And in that space, I began to really feel the love of God. I have known the love of God since I was 10 years old. And that has been my bedrock. I'm incredibly grateful for it. It was a foundation that kept me safe as a child actress. In terms of spiral dynamics, I am absolutely, it is very, very easy for me to transcend and include, to honor where I've been, to honor where many of my friends are. It doesn't feel like there is a hierarchy at all to me because I get it. And yet this space was not in my head. This understanding and experiencing of the love of God was beyond the love that passes understanding. And so I was so feeling it and I was like, oh my goodness, 
this is what the love of God feels like. It's beyond just knowing. And even though the knowing of it has kept me, I just had this understanding, if I could take this sense of the love of God to the women that I minister to, I wouldn't have to say anything. And I just said, God, whatever this is, I want to take this with me. So I don't have even have to talk, just fill the room with this presence so that every woman in there knows just at an experiential level how much they are loved by you. And in that quietness, wherever it comes from, I just sense the Lord say to me, well, I want that too. The problem is that wall that you've built around your heart to protect you is the same wall that prevents my love from flowing out of you so that that it can be felt. In that moment, I said, well, tear that wall down. Of course, I had no idea what I was giving God permission to do. I didn't understand that that wall had been built at a very young age for really important survival reasons. And so the last 12 years has been dismantling that wall and it's been terrifying and it's been painful and it's been costly and it's been worth it. But that was the moment it began. Wow. Wow. Those are some deep waters. And where do you feel like that has you right now? Like specifically spiritually, how did that dismantling of a wall affect the way that you live and interact and consider other people, like the other people on this earth right now? I would say that there's an ease of acceptance for one thing. There's never a like, hate the sin, love the sinner. That's just not there. There's not even a sense of choosing to forgive because there's nothing to forgive when there's an understanding and and an acceptance. Forgiveness is, I mean, there are certainly times when I'm hurt and I need to feel the hurt, but I have certainly been known to spiritual bypass. That is one of my favorite (laughs) ways to avoid. But when I do actually feel my feelings and allow them to flow through me, it's not long before then there's just such a deep understanding that To choose to forgive is not even a word that applies. It just is understanding and acceptance. I love that. The walls are gone. And so I would say that there's just a freedom. Love flows without the blocks. Well, that is lovely. And worth the bridge, worth the mountain, worth the $20 entry fee. I commend you on saying yes to that because it is daunting to stare down a deconstruction of the faith that has served you all the way to that moment in your life. That feels very scary. And I know exactly how that feels. And I so appreciate your candor and your vulnerability to talk about what that looks like. So you just mentioned when I let myself feel my feelings, which is a fantastic segue to talk about what you and I are on the Enneagram, which are big, big threes. Here we are in the Enneagram three episode. Let's talk about this for a minute. I wonder if you could go back for us and tell me how did you find the Enneagram and when and where? Because it intrigued you enough to train like at an Enneagram workshop, right? I found the Enneagram through my gateway drug dealer was Richard Rohr. Of course. And so <laughs> I also call him my celibate crush. <laughs> My celebrity crush is Steve Martin. My celebrate crush is Richard Rohr. That's very fair. <laughs> and, and my gateway drug was the book, Everything Belongs. And from there, I read all of Richard Rohr's books, including the Enneagram book. 
And then I did take a workshop at Esalen Institute with Russ Hudson on the Enneagram. And so I've always been fascinated with personality typings. And so this was just right in my wheelhouse. And I got sucked way, way in to learning more and more about it. Richard Rohr is so many of our gateway drugs. He actually was our guest in the series for the Enneagram One episode, which he is, which is so interesting to me because I experienced him so gently. Did you know pretty quickly that it had read you correctly? Did you know pretty early on? Yes, three. That's correct. That's how I identify. Right away, I knew it. But I will have to say that when I went to the workshop, I really, really was identifying more with the Enneagram 7 as Russ was talking. And I type now as a 7 over and over and over again. Any test I take, I took a very in-depth test recently. And maybe it's because I've done so much work on myself that the threeness in me doesn't show up as much. And just as an FYI, I was taught when you do take a test to take it as if you are in your early 20s because that really is where your ego is most at its strongest and it will give you a clearer read because it is, this is about our ego defenses and our ego structures. And so that's very helpful because I was in a full blown capital three in my early twenties. And so that's helpful because otherwise if I were to take it now, I would think I was a seven because I do show up and, and we are all those numbers. But anyway, I was mentioning this. I raised my hand in class to Russ Hudson and I said, you know, I've always identified as a three, but the more you talk about the seven, I think maybe I'm a seven. And he said, Lisa, if you've ever identified it as a three, you're a three because nobody wants to admit they're a three. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. The best thing happened to me this past week. I got my FabFitFun box for summer. I have been getting these boxes for a year and a half. And hand to the heavens, this is the best one I've ever gotten. Okay, so if you need a refresh, if you haven't been hearing me talk about it, FabFitFun is the only subscription box that delivers full-size self-care products right to your door. So four times a year, they curate items that you get to choose to personalize your own box. So you get eight to 10 products that are all together worth more than $200 every single time, but you pay only $49.99. Here's why I'm in love with this box. There's a necklace from The Giving Keys, which is one of my favorite jewelry for good brands. There is an adorable Isaac Mizrahi vase, some awesome Murad cleanser, even a really adorable golden white striped business and pleasure tote. That was my favorite thing in the box. So it's time to customize your own box for the summer season. So go to fabfitfun.com and use the code HATMAKER and you'll get $10 off your first box. So sign up today, you guys. Join a community of over a million women who are already obsessed. So one more time, that's fabfitfun.com and get $10 off your first box when you use the code HATMAKER at checkout. And if you specialize in math, that's over $200 worth of product for $39.99. And you're going to love it. All right, back to our show. When I first started working with the Enneagram and it was just pretty, pretty plain on its face that I was a three, that was what I showed up as every time and what I identify with too. I'm like, I'm not telling anybody. I'm going to go to the grave with this. I wanted to be a seven. I thought, I'll just tell people I'm a seven. 
Because yes, threes come with, when I'm healthy, I am able to say this, but it's a bit of a caricature. There's a lot more nuance and depth to a three than is sometimes discussed. We are sort of a reduced version. Of, we're kind of, I sometimes feel like a soundbite that I don't necessarily identify with in every way. What is your wing? Oh, I'm a very strong two. Yeah, me too. You and I are the exact same person. I'm a very <laughs> strong two that scored really, really high for me as well. I wonder, because it's interesting, I hadn't ever heard take it as your 20-year-old self, as your 20-year-old version of yourself. That makes sense to me because I also am finding myself soften into my number a little bit. The edges are a little bit blurred. I was just talking with Suzanne Stabile. I don't know if you've read any of her work or sat under her teaching, but she was also telling me, as was Richard, that another trend as we get older is that we start identifying with the opposite wing a little bit more. That if, you know, you and I are hard three, two, that the older we get, we start noticing that four energy showing up a little bit more. And I thought I hadn't heard that either. So one day you and I can look forward to just being really, really precious. We're going to be precious fours and we're very, very special. I love that. I Mm -hmm. love that idea. I want to be more of a four. Right. I love the fours in my life. They're so tender and sensitive and they create beautiful things and they're thoughtful. Those are the parts of me that I struggle sometimes to access. Yes, absolutely. And the artists and the poets in the world, you know, they're just living on the edge. And I, I admire that. I do too. The fours are able to sit really deeply in other people's pain. And I'm not there yet. The three in me is always wanting to fix it or to be its PR agent. You know, let me just brush this thing. I can polish this up. You know, I can really put this into high rotation as its best ideal version. And that's not super helpful to real pain. And so when you think backwards, and I do this too, because the Enneagram is such a great tool to kind of just self-identify a lot of points along the way, as I go backwards to try to make sense of choices I made or ways that I felt along different paths. Do you remember when you first noticed about yourself that you were, and of course this is reduced, but a go-getter? You know, threes are known for everybody listening who thinks we're just talking code. Threes are like the achiever, kind of known to be sort of performance-driven. They tend to be a little bit shiny, charismatic. At their best, they love their communities. They have very high ideals. They're good leaders. They can be really good leaders. And then, of course, at our worst, we can be starved for approval and applause. We can be competitive and jealous. When did you notice in your own life, like, I have big three energy. I've got big drive. I have ambition. What did that look like for you? And how far back did that go? Well, looking back, I'll say I read a book once that said to pay attention to your earliest memory because it's a good indication of the message perhaps you've been living your entire life by. And so that was fascinating to me. So I began to just kind of sit with kind of going backwards until I got to the earliest memory I could remember. And it was when I was three years old and my mom had signed me up for this summer nursery rhyme reciting class with my two other cousins. And in this class, it was a six week summer class. And every week we would go and we would learn one nursery rhyme and we would color a picture that kind of accompanied it. And then by the end of the six weeks, we had a little folder with each of the pictures and we were assigned for kind of a little recital at the end of the six weeks. And we were to memorize one of the nursery rhymes and recite it as a little recital for our parents. Well, 
I went beyond that. I knew where this was going. (laughs) I memorized all six of the nursery rhymes. And then I added hand motions (laughs) and choreography. And I had like this really big, like animated smile. And so the teacher put me on as the grand finale. Sure. And I was three. And so at the very end, I just kind of wowed the audience. But what I remember, because it's just all very, very fuzzy in my memory. I remember the purple folder very, very clearly. And then I remember just this image of catching my father's eye in the back of the room. And he was smiling in this sense of his like, oh, he's smiling at me. I think he likes me. And then this other image just follows on that I was on my mother's hip and she was carrying me around this dance studio, which is where it was, and just sensing that she was proud of me. And I got it. In that moment, I internalized the message. Oh, so this is how you get love and admiration and approval. Don't just do what's expected of you. Do what's more than expected of you and do it really big and do it with a smile. And and I've been living my life from that message mm. on. It's so interesting because I think what so many threes experience, especially women, is that you're kind of born as you are. This is who we are. But we put into rotation what was sort of natural for us, which was some charisma and some polish and shine and ambition. We want to do the best version of the thing. And we have these interesting goals that we apply to, and we're kind of good at it. But then that behavior is so rewarded. It's so celebrated that it creates potentially this cycle of core motivation, which isn't just this is who I am. And this is what brings me joy to live on earth in this way. But then it's the response that is almost addictive. So I'm curious, as a fellow three, do you ever feel like you battle what you actually want for yourself versus what other people have trained you they want from you? Like, what if you want from yourself changes that don't necessarily fall in line? They're not in alignment with what other people think you are or what they can get from you or what you do for them. How do you stay integrated and true to yourself? Well, I'll have to say that prior to even this moment, I didn't know that I was performing. So like this 12 years that I've been on, I haven't really, this is my first podcast to even speak out after this kind of 12 years of deconstruction. I haven't written a book since 2008. I have done some speaking, but I have been very, very careful to speak. I've spoken only about grace. If I'm in an evangelical setting, I have tried to hold honesty and authenticity with honoring the, you know, the church setting. So therefore, my message of recent has been honoring the gratitude I feel for the safety and the boundary of the law, which is what kept me safe while I was in that setting as a child actress, especially, and even as a young married and a young wife and mother, but also that, you know, that we are actually called to move beyond that into the freedom to be lived by the law of love and move into grace. And that when I knew that God was wanting to me to learn more about grace, that my first response was, I really love the idea of learning about grace. I just don't want to need grace. To need grace means I've messed up. And failure, of course, yeah. terrifying to me. Yep. Oh, yes. And so I do try to speak 
authentically within the context of church. But most of all, I have kind of withdrawn from that as well. And before that, I believed I was being authentic. The truth was I was being authentically unreal, if that makes Mm, sense. It does. It sure does. (laughs) And so now I'd say in the last 12 years, I have so withdrawn because I didn't know who I was and I was afraid to speak out. For one thing, I feel a big responsibility and that I do know that people listen to people in authority, that if something's in the written word, it has some gravitas to it that sometimes not really deserved. And so when my beliefs were so changing, I really didn't want to put it down on paper. And because the truth is, there's some things that I have on written in books now that I don't believe that way anymore. Right, and you can't kind of go back. And so only now am I speaking out. And all I can do is say, this is what I believe now. And it may change tomorrow. And that's all I can say. That is a very healthy three who is willing to have integrity, personal integrity, rather than just giving the room what it wants. You know, that's something we're adept at. That's something that threes can do. We're very, very adaptable. We can adapt to any room, any scenario, any moment, and we're quick, quickly adaptable. And so overcoming that just natural skill set, which it has its place. And you mentioned that it does, that serves as a protector at certain times. It has its place and it has its use. But for me, it's been a lot of important work to resist that capacity that I have to simply adapt and adjust to be whatever that room wants me to be. And that has always served me because that's rewarded. That gets rewarded every time. But I found that behavior so fractured and I felt like such a fraud inside of it. All these different versions of myself showing up at different times and then ultimately competing with one another because they were saying different things and they were pretending different things. That was not sustainable for me. It was such an unfulfilling way to live that I decided to go against my instincts and live true. And that has a cost. As you mentioned, it's $20 and some change. And I still contend, like you said earlier, worth it. Like absolutely worth it to live free and to live true and to tell the truth, to have one version of who we are in every room that we live in. It's powerfully liberating very powerfully liberating. It is. And I think to even expand on that a bit, that our one truth can be multiplicity. And that's even more confusing. Oh, that's good. But to give ourselves permission to feel contradictory ways, you know, know? and that that's okay too. And I think that that gives us even more space to be, that we can have contradictory feelings within ourselves in any given moment. So that also just gives us room to breathe. I love that you said that. One of the most celebrated traits in my sort of previous world was certainty. That there's just, this is how you feel. This is how everyone feels. This thing is not challenged. You know, we don't push on this and we don't have a different opinion and we don't have a different experience and we don't have a different thought, which is just not true. That's not true for humans. And so one of the points of freedom for me has been exactly what you just said is that I can hold two complicated ideas and maybe consider both of them in the same hour and not sure which way I'm going and I can change my mind. And that has been a real permission for me to live into my better version 
into like what I think is really true and whole. I want to ask you this question, Lisa. We're threes, so we are in the center of the heart triad. You know, two, three, four is heart triad, and you and I are in the dead center of it, which interestingly, it sounds like maybe we would be able to have the highest access to our feelings, but it's kind of the opposite. The twos and the threes actually access their feelings better than you and I can because we're so highly adaptable. This is what Suzanne Stabile told me in the first episode in the series. She said, threes absolutely experience everything through their feelings first. We're dead center of the heart triad. So everything comes into us through our emotions. We feel it first. But she said, we're a two and a four can essentially, they experience things in their feelings and then stay in them. The three with her high adaptability feels her feelings and then immediately moves it to her head where she can manage it. She can polish it up. She can fix it. She can get over it. And so I felt very like accused by that comment. I'm like, how dare you? You don't know me. I'm wondering if that has been your experience. Do you, and also has that evolved for you? When you experience things, does it come in through your feelings then up to your brain? Or have you done enough work that you can kind of sit in the feelings longer and just feel them instead of just fix them? No, that is absolutely 100% my experience. And it always surprised me because as I mentioned, I've always loved the whole personality typing. And so I've been fascinated since I was a teenager. And Myers-Briggs, I've always, even since I was a teenager, anytime I've taken the test, I've tested as an INFJ. And that's always shocked me because it's like feeler. I'm not a feeler. I'm a thinker. And I've always been surprised by the result until I realized that part of it is I'm such a deep feeler, but the immensity of my feelings scares the heck out of me. And so they're so big, I can't tolerate them. And so I have to get out of them immediately and manage them. And I manage them very well in my head because they are so huge and I do feel them so deeply. And not only are the twos, threes, the fours, the feelers, they are also in the shame triad. And shame is when we go in fear and we hide when we feel fear, we we hide and we feel shame, we hide. And that is actually why I became an actress because I was so paralyzingly shy as a child in second grade my second grade teacher told my mom she was worried about me because I would at recess, I would just go out and take a book under a tree and read rather than play with the kids. And she said, I, you know, I'm just worried about her because she's not very social. And it was because I was paralyzingly shy. And even then I was going to my head and just going out to read. And at that point, my mom took me to an all day kind of a child study center. And I did a bunch of tests. And even at that point, After all these tests, the doctor said two things. She is afraid of rejection and she has a high Q, but she goes to her head in order to manage her fear of rejection. Wow. So from the time I was very, very little, that is how I've learned to manage this fear and this shame and this hiding. And so I hide from my feelings. I hide from my fear. And then on the other side of it, then I perform to be someone else. Absolutely. I mean, that is it. That's the threes path. And what's tricky about that is that it works. That's what's tricky. Yes. Not only does it work to keep us safe, but it actually is very successful. It makes it successful. So to give that up is a very high cost. I remember when in the beginning of this deconstruction, it hit me, oh, 
if I actually surrender and say yes to what I'm being asked to do, I may not ever be as successful as I've been before. That was a real choice I had to make. And it's actually proven to be true in a Western kind of way. (laughs) I like that you said that because we threes are very known for goals and being somewhat success driven. That is what people say about us. That's it's often true. And so I'm curious, what does success look like to you right now in this stage of your life? How has that changed? What do you consider now? This is the thing that to me feels successful. I will say I'm kind of in transition from labeling success for me. Like the last 12 years, success has been kind of an inner journey. And of course, Richard Rohr says you do take your Enneagram energy and, and overlay it over anything. And so when I knew that silence and stillness was where God so often shows up in the most pure form, I took my three energy and it was like, I am going to be the best at being still (laughs) than anybody else. (laughs) Nobody else is going to be better at silence and doing nothing than I am. Here's me being the best at being silent and still. And so I took all this. I mean, I went like all in. The 30-day silent retreat sounds really un-three, except it is a very three thing to do if a three is trying to learn how to be silent and still. And then I kind of, it sounds really good, except I ended up, I wrote in on my computer 92,000 words on that 30-day silent retreat. You so my not. mind was not still, you know, I'm going to oh. give myself props for baby steps. I tried, but you know, <laughs> the three energy was still alive. Sure. <laughs> And well, but I will say now I have longed my whole life and I have believed that marriage could be a spiritual path, that in the crucible of an intimate relationship, you know, that we are wounded in the context of a relationship and that you can really, truly only be healed within the context of relationship and that for our core wounds, you have to let someone in to the core places. And that also requires immense safety and security. And so I'd say there's no better place, but one of the most optimal places would be within the construct of marriage. And I would say now where I am and where I'm focusing my energy is I am enjoying just being in this crucible of a new marriage with a partner who wants also to be awake and conscious and brave. And we are activating and triggering each other's core wounds. And if they're not activated and triggered so that we can feel them and see them and deal with them so that they can be healed. And that's what I long for. I've done enough work on myself alone. I've reached the end of what I can do alone. I need to be triggered in my core wounds and work through that. And so that's where I am now. Oh, man. Gosh. We're doing some of that work this very minute. I mean, up to the very minute I got on this podcast. I'm like, all right, you got to get out of my office. I'm about to talk to Lisa. So that is very near and dear to me and true and real. So speaking of that, I'm sure that you have made your shiny new husband take the Enneagram. What's his number? 
He's a nine. Oh, I love nines. Oh, how nice. A three nine is a good combination. What does that look like in your marriage from an Enneagram perspective? I will speak first to the the blessing of the nine. The blessing of the nine, and, and this is a good segue because I want to speak to something that Russ Hudson taught in this workshop that I have not read elsewhere and yet has been really, really helpful for me in understanding the Enneagram. He had a little bit of kind of a tweak on where we go in stress and where we go in growth. He said, where we go in stress is also where we go in safety. And that so resonated with me. And I see that on every single type. Because for instance, a three goes to nine under stress. So when I just feel like I'm overwhelmed, I've done and I've done and I, it's too much, I can't do it. I'll just, okay, that's it. I give up. I'm sitting on the couch. I'm reading, you know, I'm just going to, absolute whatever. Stuff. Exactly. Complete withdrawal. Same. Exactly. But here's the thing. Being married to a nine it has given me the safety. I've never been a TV watcher. I always read. I love to read. I've never watched television except Survivor. I don't watch television. I love to read. I love to learn. It's my joy. I love to work. You know, it gives me pleasure. I've always been on a diet. I've always been exercising. In the last three years, I've put on 30 pounds. I have binge watched all of the most famous shows. I love it. <laughs> I, and you know why? Because love I it. am safe. I am loved. I don't have to perform. I don't have to be beautiful. I don't have to have a perfect body. I don't have to produce. There's no pressure to be anything. He loves me for me. He once said, you know, I think it's great that you've done all those things. But if you worked at the shoe carnival, I would love you. He said, of course, I know you. You would be regional manager in eight months. But I would still, I would love you no matter what you did. And that safety I am loving being in that nine space. And Russ said that if you didn't get where you go in stress, if you didn't get that in childhood, it's actually really important to go back and get that So for wholeness. So now from this place, if I don't have to perform to be loved, I can actually go from there to six, having retrieved this sense of safety and being loved just for being rather than doing. And I'm going to be a more whole three or a more whole six side. Mm, mm. That is so resonant with me. I have a handful of spaces and people with whom I know for sure am a hundred percent loved for just who I am, not at all, all these things that I do, which I also love. I love my work, same as you, but that it has no bearing on who I am in that relationship and how that person perceives me. And I am my best self inside those places. That is where my shoulders come down and I relax. And then I'm able to be that wonderful space of growth, which is that upside of a six, so connected, so loyal, just that beautiful sort of relational advantage that the sixes in our lives bring us. That is, I love that you're in that place. I'm really happy for you. It's work for a three to get there. And I know it. I know that that required laying down so many things and unlearning and relearning. And I commend you. Like, I really commend you that you have landed there in your life. It's incredible. Do you love puzzles like I do? I'm going to wave a nerd alert flag because puzzles are a great way to use different gears in my brain. And I need that sometimes. 
I do. So I, I have an app on my phone that I absolutely love. It's called Best Fiends. All right. Best Fiends is a game filled with literally thousands of puzzles that update every single month. So it never gets old. You never run out. It's bright and silly. And when I just need a minute, I can dip in to solve a few puzzles, then dip back out to my day. If I'm looking to check out for just a sec, Best Fiends is one of my favorite go-tos right now. It's fun. And sometimes we just can't be fun. So you can engage your brain with fun puzzles. And trust me, with over, you guys, 100 million downloads, okay, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game, it's honestly a must play, right? A hundred million people cannot be wrong. So download Best Fiends free. You guys, that's it on the Apple App Store or Google Play. So that's like friends without the R, Best Fiends. All right, back to our show. Let's tell people this because a lot of people listening today are they're not a three, so they do not understand our energy. They don't understand our like big audacious ambitions. And we can't help it to be the regional manager. It's just the way we're born. But they're married to a three, or they're in partnership with a three, or they work really closely with one, or they parent one. Let's just say they're close to somebody who's a three. What would you tell them? And I'll pile on after your answer. If that person is finding herself or himself in conflict with one of us in conflict with a three, how can we advise them as the best strategies to resolve it and to move forward in the relationship? What can we tell them about what a three is thinking and feeling inside conflict, how to reach us and how to connect and how to get to the other side of that thing? I will speak personally for myself, because I don't know that this applies to everybody. My middle daughter is a three with a two wing. And I think her husband has also come up with a really beautiful kind of image for how to be in relationship with her that works well. He says when they are in conflict that she gets inside her igloo and she has a little window with a sniper gun. And And she is laser focused in, in her, you know, she's sharp and quick and knows how to just fire And that he knows he can't come to the front. He'll be shot down. So he has to go around to the back and kind of hug her from behind and let the warmth of his love melt some of that igloo and then be strong so that her backbone can feel the strength of him. It's a lot to ask. It is. But to have someone that can first be soft enough to help reach our soft spots because I will retreat first of all. And I need somebody to come get me, which takes a lot of bravery because when I retreat, I'm probably have my sniper gun out the window as well. And so it takes a lot of bravery to approach me in that space, but I need somebody to come get me and then to be soft enough, but then not so mamby pamby soft that I can't feel safe. I need some strength to feel safe enough and some solidity that I can then express my feelings without feeling that I'm going to overpower somebody with my feelings. And that's also a fear of mine that I have to, it's the two wing, I think, that I have to take care of somebody and therefore I can't be the full power of who I am. So it's a whole lot to ask, but 
if someone that's in conflict with me can realize that underneath all of that, that strength, there's a softness that is crying, you know, out, come get me, come get me, come get me. And then I need you to be strong so that I can relax into you and also be strong and fight with me a little bit. And I I know that sounds like a lot to ask, but you know, it doesn't hurt to ask. (laughs) It doesn't hurt to ask and it doesn't hurt to shed some light on what's actually going on because what people see is the sniper gun out the window. It's helpful to say, this is what's going on inside. I can tell you like for me, everything you just said is pitch perfect, spot on. That's precisely true. And one of our interior fears as threes are that we are really loved well when we are good. You know, when we're performing, when we are serving well, when we are being good leaders, when we're succeeding, when we're achieving, just when we are this incredible version that people um, want from us, this, this great, this great version of ourselves. And so conflict suggests that the whole mechanism could unravel. That see, we knew it. We're not loved. Things go wrong. I made a mistake. We're in conflict. What that's signaling to me is that I'm about to lose the love part. I'm about to lose that connection. It's in jeopardy. And so for me to, to be approached in such a way to say, hey, come down out of the rafters. This is a hard moment. There's tension inside of it. We're going to have to say some hard words. We're going to maybe have to have some hard conversations, but I love you. We'll get to the other side of it. Neither one of us is going to die. This doesn't mean everything's doomed. Don't catastrophize. We can do this hard thing and come through on the other side of it and still deeply love one another. That's so reassuring to me that I'm not just about to lose the whole thing because something's hard or bad because we're just not great at conflict. That's not our skill set. Exactly. And I think also that's so helpful to hear somebody say that and remind us, because I think we're not only good at conflict, but we're so used to immediately jumping out of our feelings that a small feeling feels disproportionately huge. Sure does. <laughs> and so it's, it's somebody to remind us that, okay, you know what? We're not going to die. We're not going to divorce. You're not going to lose. You're not a horrible failure. This is actually just a conflict. We're going to get through it because everything inside of our body is telling us this is the end and it's horrible and we're yeah. failures and because we're just not used to feeling these feelings. We know how to get out of them. And when we can't get out of them, we just catastrophize. Oh, it's just terrible. I mean, it's just, so yes, we both, Lisa and I both readily admit that that's a tall order. Everybody who's married to a three is like, good Lord. <laughs> oh my <laughs> God. I mean, my own personal like crisis counselor just to have a basic argument with my person. You know, this is something that we work on. A healthy three at least knows this about herself and wills herself to stand in the feelings longer than we want to, which is longer than five seconds. And so I'm working on this so hard right now. Oh my gosh. In fact, I told you, my husband and I were having a big time conversation literally just before this podcast and it had gone on for, please give me a gold star, like a three once, an hour. It had gone on for an hour. And then I was fully got to the, some point and I was like, that's just it. Like, that's it. I'm at capacity. And he just laughed. I'm like, it was an hour. Like, you have to acknowledge that uh, you were so proud of me for doing that for an hour. Uh, (laughs) I'm proud of you. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Lisa.
Ever since I wrote my newest book called Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire, I have been thinking about the women in my family who came before me because I know they've shaped the woman I am today, of course. And I'll tell you, Ancestry is a wonderful partner in this journey of family discovery. An Ancestry DNA test can give you historical details that bring your unique family stories to life. You can find a famous relative or even a photo of your great-grandma as a little girl. Like whatever you find, it's sure to change the whole way that you look at your family history and even yourself. It did for me. When I got my own results back from Ancestry, I learned that most of my ancestors are from the UK and I always thought it was something different. So that has sparked so many conversations our family wouldn't have had otherwise and made our family story that much richer. So you can start exploring your family story today. Here's how. Head to Ancestry dot com slash for the love to get your ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. So that's ancestry.com slash for the love. All right, back to our show. Okay, one last question and then we'll wrap it up. For the threes that are listening right now, and they are like, okay, I want to be more healthy. I want to be more whole. I want to grow. I want to be beautiful inside of my relationships. I want to be tender. I really want to be healthy. If you could just pick one, of course, we could say a million things toward our three community, but what one piece of advice might you say, knowing how they are wired, what they're afraid of, what they're motivated by, what their instincts are, what would one piece of advice, what would you say to them? This is a place to start. I would say... Dare to sit with and wrestle with and perhaps even experience the possibility that it would be okay for you to be ordinary and that you would be loved. You don't have to save the world, that God is not needing you to do anything, even if you're doing grand works for the kingdom of God, even if you're doing wonderful social justice things on behalf of people in the marginalized, those are all wonderful things. Even if you are really taking care of a lot of people in your world, even if you are making a difference on behalf of other people, that's all fabulous. And even if you are shiny in your threeness and it's all very altruistic, Live with the possibility that if you lived on the corner of Main and 2nd Street and watched television and took your kids to Little League and cooked dinner occasionally and never did anything spectacular ever again, but simply enjoyed the simple things of life and relationships with a small community of people and went deeply into just the people around you and the things around you and lived deeply in a small circle and experienced deeply the love that was everywhere just around you and experienced that ordinariness that that would be absolutely bring as much joy and pleasure to God as the shiny things you do for him, perhaps out of fear that you need to do that to please him. Lovely. That is such a wonderful and a perfect answer to the question. We're going to wrap this up. These are just three kind of quick off the top of your head 
questions that we're asking everybody in the Enneagram series. And so here's the first one. If you could choose to be a different Enneagram number, which one would you pick? I'd say that's a toss up between a healthy four or a healthy nine, because a healthy four are the artists and the poets. I long to be the veil to be that thin in my life. And then I think the healthy nine really is at the peak and the pinnacle of the Enneagram where there is the wholeness of all the types. And I would long to have that experience. Yes, me too. Okay. Swap that. Which part of your exact personality do you enjoy most about yourself? I love learning. I just, I eat it up. It's like dessert to me. I love books. I love workshops. I love learning. And here's the thing. My hunch is when Rumi met his teacher, Shams, Shams told him to throw all his books into the fountain before he could actually move into the deeper learning, which was deep wisdom. I have a hunch that's probably what would be asked of me to move into the deepest learning. That would be the next cost and sacrifice ask of me. And I'm not quite ready because I love it because I love reading so much and I love learning, but I do have a hunch. It may be something that on the horizon ask of me to sacrifice Mm. if I want a deeper one. We'll keep our eye on that. But I also love that you're a learner. I love learning too. Just cannot get enough to feed these minds of ours. I just appreciate you. Thank you for coming on this show. Thank you for your incredible tenderness, for talking about your story and your path and what you are learning and where you're going. It meant so much to me, definitely as a three who understood every single word you said, but also just a person and a woman. And so I am deeply grateful that you said yes to this podcast, the first one since 2008. Thank you for doing it. I really treasure your presence here and hold it with really, really tender hands. And so we're thrilled, thrilled to have had you on. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and thank you for being a safe space. And thank you for the sacrifice that you have gone through to create a safe space, not only for me, but for so many. And so I'm very grateful. A nice thing to say. Okay, sending you all of my love. And all my love back. Thanks, Lisa. And now... To tell us more about the music you've been listening to in this episode, we hear from composer Ryan O'Neill, a.k.a. Sleeping at Last, about the inspiration behind this piece. Threes are amazing people, like right out of the gate, just excellent. Not because of what they do, but because of who they are. And I know this personally because my wife is a type three, which means that writing the song around the house was really challenging because when I'm writing, I'm trying out all sorts of ideas, mostly bad ones, because it's it's her type. I was just really insecure about her hearing any of it before it was finished. My initial idea for the song was to kind of go all out, to be as big and and grand in the recording as I possibly could. So even hire a 100-piece orchestra. That was the intent for several months leading up to actually writing the song. And the deeper I dug into the type and my research and in my own experience as a partner to a type three, uh, I knew that in order to show the type three in their true beauty was to be as intimate and vulnerable with the song as possible. 
So everyone already knows that type threes are capable of leading a, a million piece orchestra if they wanted to. But I believe that the health of the integrated three brings that same level of excellence just by choosing to be vulnerable and open. So this song is one of the more intimate songs of the bunch. So it's primarily piano and, and my voice. There are violins that weave in and out of this song. And for the strings, I wanted them to feel less like a string arrangement and more like a floral arrangement, which I know sounds weird. So the strings sort of flourish or, or bloom and will away throughout the song in little moments. I don't know, maybe it's because my wife adores flowers, but I, I just kept thinking about flowers and everything I read and learned about the type three uh, as they are just naturally beautiful. The hope for this song is to remind type threes that they are wonderful without lifting a finger. The word worthy suddenly just made a lot of sense to me, which is kind of what I aimed at with this song. And that led to writing the, the final lyric of this song, which is, I only want words for you. I set aside the highlight real my greatest failures on display with an asterisk worthy of love anyway well there you are everything you ever wanted to know about Enneagram threes. Uh, it's so nice to have a conversation partner like that. Isn't it so nice when you speak to somebody who really understands your internal wiring that isn't asking for an explanation, but is more like, yes, me too. It's so good to be among our people. And I'm grateful to her for joining us on this show. And to you for listening, you guys are sharing the tarnation out of this series. And I love that you are. I hope it's a tool in your hands. And by the way, if I didn't already mention this, the whole thing was my assistant Amanda's idea. And she had it a year ago. She's like, guys, I'm just going to quit if we can't do a series on the Enneagram. And so this is her brainchild and her baby. And I'm so happy that she kept her foot on the gas. Laura and I were like, yes, fine. We'll obey you. Also, next week, we go Enneagram 4. Probably one of the greatest conversations in this series. I will be talking to Enneagram master, all around phenomenal human being, Ian Cron. So he said so many things in the Enneagram 4 episode that just had me reeling. I literally ran inside the house and told Brandon, I got to just tell you like five things I heard in this episode that I need to get off my chest really quickly. So you're not going to want to miss next week or any of the weeks, frankly. And so thanks for sharing these episodes and for subscribing and rating and reviewing the podcast. I just, that helps podcasts so very much. And it means the world as we read every comment you guys say, we care about your input. We are listening and uh, delighted to serve you week in and week out. So you guys see you next week for the Enneagram 4 episode. You're going to love it. See you then.